turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. It's good to be back here at Ohana. Looking forward to sharing a little bit of an update as uh, we look to head to Maui uh, this coming Thursday. But 1 John chapter 5 is what we're going to look at this morning. We've talked about in our song service the love of God, and Pastor Caleb has emphasized that in the service here this morning. And we're going to be looking at the, the Word of God and at this matter of the love of God this morning. We're going to be looking at several different characteristics uh, of God. And I pray that as we consider this this morning, that we consider uh, how much we know about God and that we are worshiping the one true God this morning. In 1 John 5, verse number 20, we'll begin reading. It says this, And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Notice how he concludes this chapter here. He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen, or so be it. We're going to be turning our Bibles uh, regularly here this morning, and so much like Pastor Surface, I hope you'll be ready to turn in your Bible. I'll try to give you the reference a little bit ahead of time, but we're going to lay a foundation of knowing God this morning and then bring our application. So let's pray, and then we'll begin to dive in. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning, the opportunity we have to worship you and just praise your name. Thank you for your love for us. And Lord, as we'll look at, thank you for your holiness your justice, and I pray that we'd understand better how all these three work together and have worked together from the beginning of creation all the way to our salvation and even today as we continue through life. I pray that each one of us would evaluate our life this morning, recognizing where we stand in our relationship with you. Lord, if we've been worshiping idols, as we'll consider this morning, I pray that we'd recognize that and confess that to you. And Lord, if anybody here would recognize their need of a Savior and, not, and recognize they need Christ this morning, that they would turn to you and, and recognize how they can have a personal relationship with you. Help me to speak clearly, and may you be glorified and honored through this second service. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have a question for you this morning. I'm going to have several questions for you. It's not to trick you or anything like that. I'm not going to ask you for a raise of hands or for a poll or anything like that. But I want us to be thinking this morning on what we personally think about and know about God. This is the first question I want to pose to you this morning. And again, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to speak out loud. Just think about this in your own heart. Answer this for yourself this morning. Here's the question. What God do you worship? What God do you worship? Being in church today, I'm sure many of us in one way or the other would of course, say in our own mind, well, Brother Matt, I'd worship the God of the Bible. If I further asked you to prove it, you could probably point to me uh, scriptures and, and scriptures like we'll look at today about attributes of God and what you believe about God. You might even give me examples of how you've defended your faith and maybe stood for God and maybe even faced some persecution for your standing in your belief of God. Though I have no doubt many of us have Bible verses we could find and examples we could give of how we have taken a stand for God, I believe the question must still be asked by every single believer in the room this morning, what God do you or what God do I worship? In our American Christianity, I find it very evident today that many churches and many Christians claim to come to church and claim to worship God. But the God they're worshiping 
is a counterfeit. He sounds like the real thing, and many of us could be deceived to believe that we all serve the same God. But the truth is, there may be some this morning here, knowingly or unknowingly, that put together what I might call a counterfeit or a customized God. Maybe even truly you're worshiping, in its true extent, a idol, a false God this morning. One may look and sound like God, but he isn't. He's a counterfeit. He's an idol, simply put, a false God. You say, Matt, what do you mean? Let me ask you a few questions further about the God that you came to worship this morning. Would you describe the God you came to worship today as a God of love? We talked about that this morning. We, we sang about that. I believe the scripture is clear about that. But how would you begin defining God as a God of love? Let me give you a few examples. Maybe you'd uh, agree with some of these. Maybe you wouldn't agree with some of these. That, that's okay. We're just getting our mind thinking this morning on how we would personally define God. Is the God of love for you a God at his core? He is love. Is he a God that unconditionally accepts all? Is he a God who accepts you in your sin? Is he a God who never would send anybody to hell? Not only God of love, but is your God a God of justice? Is your God a God that makes sure people get what they deserve? A God who's watching every move to make sure you do right? One who lays down the law, who, one who's just waiting to punish wrong? Is your God holy? A God of perfection? A God of self-denial and separation? One who expects strict adherence to his laws? One who weighs us down with the pursuit of perfection? As you consider these three, what we often call attributes of God, and though there would be many more today that we could talk about, we're going to focus on these this morning. Uh, what statements did I make that you would agree with about God? Let me ask you this. Would you emphasize one of these three attributes, love, justice, and holiness, above another? How would you try to describe God if he's just, if he's holy, if he's loving? How do we, how do we take these characteristics of God and weigh them out in the God that we serve? I ask these questions because I want us to think today and ask ourselves, is the God I worship at his core the true God of the Bible or a false representative of the one true God defined in the Bible? To illustrate what I mean by emphasizing one attribute or another, let me ask it this way. If I were to look at you and say, God is loving, he's holy, he's just, how do you, how do you put all that in with God? Would you try to maybe use a percentage of 100% and maybe you'd say, well, God's 20% holy, I guess he's 5% just or 75% love. We might not like that agreement. We might say, no, Brother Matt, it, it's, he's one-third love, he's one-third holy, he's one-third just. He's, he's equally all these things. Friend, if either of these illustrations are anywhere close to where you would define God, I have to tell you this morning in love, you're worshiping an idol. It doesn't matter how, many, how much we try to balance this matter of God's this percentage of love and this percentage of justice. If we try to take 100% of who God is and try to put different levels of these standards together to try to say this is the God I serve, or if this morning that's in fact how you view God, then I have to tell you this morning you're worshiping a counterfeit God. Church, I want us to better understand today who God is and make sure we're all worshiping the God of this book this morning. As we do that, 
I want to consider truly what these three attributes that we're mentioning in the service this morning and really define them as who truly God is. First this morning, we need to recognize that God is holy. Turn over to, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 2. 1 Samuel 2, verse number 2. The scripture outlines for us passage after passage. We're just going to look at a couple of them this morning to, to, to summarize here. But scripture over and over again would tell us that God is holy. Uh, 1 Samuel 2, 2 says this, There is none holy as the Lord. For there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. 1 Peter 1.16 challenges those that are saved by saying, Because it is written, Be ye holy, God says, because I, or for, I am holy. Revelation 4.8 tells us there are creatures in heaven that continually call God holy in worship. It says in Revelation 4.8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rested not night and day, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. This word holy in the Bible is a word referencing something sacred, something set apart. It it can also speak to a saint or something pure. In the Greek language, Strong's tells us something holy was something revered. It was something pure and something sinless. To say God is holy is to say he is set apart from everything. There is nothing like God. That's why 1 Samuel 2 put it, there is none holy as the Lord. He is unlike anything we know or can imagine. There is nothing we could completely relate him to. He is completely sinless. There is nothing that could right, we could rightly accuse him of, of doing anything that would be against his holiness. Now, when I say these things, I'm not saying God has these characteristics. I'm saying this is literally who he is. Is And that is something we must understand this morning. It is not God is 20, 50, 75% holy. No, he is holy. So much so that this means that there would be no such thing as holy as we know it without the existence of God. And that is the God we are to be worshiping today. A God that is holy. We could put it this way. God is the existence of holiness. There would be no holiness without there being God. But not only is God holy, notice secondly with me, God is just. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32.4. Deuteronomy 32.4. So God is holy. He's set apart from anything. The Bible tells us, as much as the Bible tries to explain for us that, that God is uh, we, we understand the scripture tells us that God has these characteristics that are human-like. We, we talk about the hand of God or the span of God and so forth. And really, the scripture gives us an understanding of these are simply pictures that man understands. But the reality is God is beyond our imagination because here's the reality. As much as God became man and through Jesus, God himself as himself, the three in one, is a spirit. And those that worship in the Bible says must worship him in spirit and in truth. He is far beyond anything we could ever understand or know. He is holy, but also the scripture says he is just. Deuteronomy 32.4, he is the rock, it says. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right 
is he. Turn over to Psalm 89, 14. Psalm 89, verse 14. It says this, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth go before thy face. The end of Isaiah 45, 2 says, And there is no God else beside me. God speaking himself. He says, A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. The word just in the Bible is a word referring to that which is lawful, that which is right, that which is correct, or we also might call it righteousness. As much as God is what we would call the substance of holiness or the existence of holiness, just the same, he is just. All his ways are lawful and right. There is nothing he does that is unfair or disobedient to the laws which he as our creator has established. I appreciate how one person defined this. He, he says, justice is one of God's attributes and flows out of his holiness. We've said God is holy. And then as this man says, he says, out of God's holiness comes his justice. He continues this thought by saying justice and another attribute of God, righteousness, are often used synonymously in the Bible. Since righteousness is the quality or character of being right or just, it is another attribute of God and incorporates both his justice and his holiness. In summary, what he's saying there is righteousness, justice, holiness, these attributes of God, they work together. And what we understand this morning is as there was no such thing as holiness without God, just the same, there is no such thing as justice without him. When we say God is just, literally there would be no justice in our world without the existence of God. And that's proven in our world today. We live in a world that's very much your truth versus my truth. And oftentimes in that equation, the person that says, well, you have your truth and I have my truth, it usually comes down to you need to accept my truth. I don't need to accept your truth. And we live in this world that's just your truth, my truth. There's really no right and wrong. It's just whatever you define. But here's the reality. In a world without God, that would be true. But God being our creator, he created a just system of right and wrong. And in that, he is the existence of justice, and we would not have justice in our world without the existence of him. Not only that, but God is love. Turn over to 1 John 4, verses 7 through 8. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 8. We understand, as we sang this morning, God is love. And if there was one passage that clearly demonstrates this, it's this passage right here. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For here it is, for God is love. The word love used here in this verse speaks to a very specific type of love. In this instance, it's a noun and it speaks to the Greek language, the word agape love. This word speaks to affection, benevolence, meaning a disposition to do good. More specifically, it speaks to love feast. And when I say the word love feast, what is that talking about? Well, what, the, what we understand about commentators and so forth, what they tell us about this matter of love feast and this agape love is a love feast was a feast expressing and fostering mutual love, which used to be held by Christians before the celebration of the Lord's Supper and at which poorer Christians mingled with the wealthier and partook in common with the rest of the food provided at the expense of the wealthy. 
in the early church, we'd understand from this context that before the Lord's Supper would take place, they'd have a meal. And, and in fact, when you read uh, some of Paul's writings, he's rebuking the church because they're having this meal and they're just making it a big party. And it's not about the sacredness and the respect of the Lord's Supper. But before the, before the Lord's Supper, we understand these, these believers would get together. And as it says here and outlines for us, the wealthier would come together with the poor and, and, and just one body. And what the wealthier would do is out of their abundance, they would purchase the food that everybody may eat. And as we th- consider this agape love and we maybe heard different definitions of it, we get this picture and illustration of, of a sacrifice uh, by the wealthy to provide for all. And in fact, what this agape word is, like I mentioned, it's a noun here in 1 John 4, 8, which comes from the verb form agapo, a word that expresses kindness and care for another. This type of love wasn't just something said in those days. It was something expressed. It was something shown. Agape or agapo love was demonstrated love. It wasn't just a feeling. In fact, we understand this was the highest form of love that could be expressed in their day. Church, God is love. It's not a characteristic of God, which at times he lacks like us. No, God is love. In the same way we have described holiness and just, there would be no such thing as love without God. The phrase God is love tells us, as one commentator put it, God is fundamentally and essentially love. Churches, I've just defined for you holiness, justice, and love in relationship to God. I want you to see and understand from Scripture today that God is not more or less one of these characteristics. He is the very existence of all three. Though at times we as humans can have varying levels of holiness, justice, and love, God is the complete unification of all three. What I want to do in the rest of our time this morning and bring the application, I I want to prove and demonstrate this fact that God is the existence of all three and that he works all three from creation all the way to today and the cross and so forth. To do that, we've got to start at the beginning. Turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. We could read all Genesis, really Genesis 1 through 3, to get a full context of this, and I'd encourage you maybe do that later as you have time, but for sake of time this morning, we're just going to bounce around and and get a summary of what takes place in, in, in the first few chapters of Genesis, but As we come to this matter, we understand that God, being holy, in his holiness, being set apart, distinct from anything else, sinless and perfect, when he created the universe, the Bible tells us, out of nothing, God spoke and created a perfect world. All of this could be summarized as it says here in Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. These words, very good, was based on God's own standard, which we understand was holiness, perfection, set apart from anything else. In other words, when God said this matter that the creation he had made was very good is that it was sinless and perfect. Everything God initially made at the beginning was this way, but as we understand in our world today, as we understand the scare of the coronavirus and so forth, our world today is not perfect. And so what happened? Well, we understand this, in this perfect harmony with God's holiness, we also understand God was just and he was loving. And in his creation, in his justice and his love, he created mankind with a choice to love him back. 
The Bible says this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. And the Lord God took man, the first man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We get an understanding again that God, out of nothing, spoke a perfect universe. He made a garden out of this, this world that he made for man. And in this garden, he puts the first man, Adam, and he tells Adam, I've made this garden for you. I want you to take care of it. And here's the thing. You can have of every tree that I've put, every, every fruit tree and, and so forth that produces something that you can eat, you can have it. But I want you to know there's this one tree that I've put here that you can't eat of it. And if you eat of it, there's a consequence. You shall surely die. And so God, in his holiness, makes a perfect creation. In his justice, he establishes a right and wrong. And in his love, he gives man the opportunity to love him in return. But as we know, man didn't make the right choice. And we could debate all day, well, why did God put the tree in the garden? Why didn't God just not put that there and just man would have lived you know, perfectly and everything would have been right. Well, I have to ask you a question this morning. When we think of love, what would love be without a choice? Would it really be love as we define it today? Imagine this morning if every single one of us had no option but to love one another. That'd be pretty hard, right? For some of us. But it wouldn't be because, well, there's no concept of love. Because here's the thing, love has a choice. Every single day when you wake up in the morning, if you're a husband or a wife, you choose to love your spouse. You might not feel like loving your spouse that specific day, but you choose to do so. It's a choice. Love wouldn't be really love without that option not to, would it? So, with God's wisdom and in his justice and love, he created man with a right and wrong and giving man the option to love. And though there would be many reasons that maybe God would outline for us beyond this concept, we understand that when God created the world, uh, one of the reasons why he placed this tree in the garden for man to choose whether they would disobey or not was to give man the free will to love him back. As we can see, God was holy, just, and loving as he established creation. He, he in holiness, created a perfect creation. He, he set up right and wrong. He, he loved by giving man the opportunity to love in return. But as we understand in Genesis 3, man chose to, to disobey. It says here in Genesis 3, 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this would have been the first woman God created, Eve. The tree God had told Adam not to eat from, she, she saw it and that it was good for food and that it was a pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. Mankind ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. Mankind now had freely chosen not to love God and disobey his command. Being holy and just, God placed upon mankind the curse of death. And we need to understand this punishment he had already set up before mankind disobeyed, which means it was a just punishment. And now it was in full effect. I illustrated in the earlier service this concept 
when we think of this matter of God being just, sometimes we look at it and say, well, why would God, a loving God, say, send someone to hell? And, and the reality is we've got to come back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and recognize God established his holiness, his justice, and his love. And man made a free choice to disobey. I have a daughter who's four. And when I don't want her to touch something because I know that would be bad for her to touch or we're simply teaching her how to have good manners and so forth, uh, one thing we do, like I said this morning, uh, is we don't, when, when we were traveling on deputation, we would make sure she didn't come up on stage and touch the sound equipment and so forth and mess anything up. And so we would tell her, you don't go on stage and touch things. If you do, there will be a consequence. It's pretty simple, right? Now, would you call a parent that, that would look at their child and say, listen, don't touch something here. If you do, there's a consequence. Would you call that parent unjust? No, they're setting up a rule. They're saying, this is not to be touched. If you touch it, something will happen. You will get a consequence. And just the same, God looked at Adam, not saying that Adam was some child or something like that. We understand he was grown uh, and established as a man. And, and God looked at Adam and said, listen, you can have of every tree of the garden, but not this one. And if you eat it, thou shalt surely die. And what Adam chose to do was he made a free choice to disobey God. And because of that, the punishment of his sin, as God had already established previously, was death. Not just separation from body and soul, but this was permanent separation from an intimate relationship with God. This punishment wasn't just for Adam and Eve, though. It's for each one of us as humankind. The Bible says this in, in Romans 5, 12. Paul gives us understanding. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. Scripture gives us an understanding. We're all born with the nature to sin. And as I look around this room at the different ages this morning, the reality is this. We might not like to call it sin in our politically correct society today, but this is the reality. Every single one of us has done wrong. Every single one of us has done wrong. I have done wrong. And as such, my friend, we have not just wronged somebody in that situation. Maybe we've disobeyed our parents or, or whatever it may be. We've not just wronged somebody. Ultimately, we've wronged God because in his justice, God has established his law. We understand just simply something like the Ten Commandments as we go down the list and consider do not bear false witness or don't lie, uh, don't covet, uh, don't have any other gods before you. As we're talking about this morning, the list could go on. We recognize that we have disobeyed these commands and we've disobeyed many of them. Because of that, we stand guilty before God just like Adam and Eve. And just as the punishment of their sin was death, the punishment for our sin is death. In all holiness, justice, and love, we must understand this morning that God could have rightly punished man and moved on. Up to this point throughout creation, we understand he's been holy, he's been just, he's been loving. Man chose to disobey. God could have rightly wiped out man and done something else, and he would have been still just, holy, and right and loving. And truly, that's what we deserve. But God didn't stop there. In his holiness, in his justice, in his love, he continued his holiness, his justice, and his love in his redemption of mankind. Because he's also merciful. And God, 
in his mercy became a man while still remaining God. John 1, 1 tells us this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was God. And the Bible says in verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. When we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. In verses 15 through 17 and beyond, Jesus Christ is identified as the word that was God and became flesh. It says this, John bare witness of him and cried saying, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is before before me for he was before me in his fullness. Have we all received in grace for grace for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth was given by Jesus Christ. In perfect unification of his holiness, justice and love, the Bible tells us that God, Jesus came to earth. He died, was buried and rose again to be payment for our sin. We call this the gospel. There's a lot of religions, there are a lot of churches out there that want to use this term. But the gospel is not just good news that if you give to God, he'll give you back or, or some status uh, of religion. The gospel simply put as the scripture defines it. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I want us to look there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, God defines for us that the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has died for our sins, has been buried, and risen again. We see this very clearly. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. Not just saved from a car wreck, not just saved from uh, some bad situation in your life. What Paul's saying about this matter of being saved is saved from the penalty of our sin. If ye keep in memory, says what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. As we put this all together and consider the redemptive work of God, notice these attributes here come to, to light. You see, God being holy and just demanded payment for sin. If God was going to be just, if he was going to be holy, the punishment had to be paid. God being holy qualified himself to be that payment for all who have sinned. God, what we often call the second person of Jesus, being love, did what it would take to justly pay for the penalty of sin so that we could be set free from the punishment of death. And as we understand here in, in God's holiness and justice, he must pay for the sin of death. In his holiness, he could be that payment. Jesus came to earth. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. And when he rose again, that wasn't just a matter uh, 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 of just saying, look, I can rise from the dead. But it was a matter of not only paying for sin through his death, but also showing victory over sin through his life. And what we understand as we consider that is the fact that he has always and will always be a God that is holy, be a God that is just, and be a God that is loving. Do you understand what I'm trying to say today? Do you see the God of the Bible this morning? He is the God we're to be worshiping. So I ask you the question again, what God do you worship? Let me put it this way, and this might make more sense as we think about this. Are you worshiping the God defined in the Bible or the God you've defined? There's a hairline of difference there. I hope you catch it. 
I'll say it again. Are you worshiping the God defined in the Bible or the God you've defined? Maybe you've been worshiping the false God of religion. You think doing enough good things will earn you God's love. Friend, if you're just simply worshiping a God that you think if you'll earn enough that you'll get to heaven, I believe what you're doing is you're worshiping an idol this morning, a false God of holiness. And this is the reality. Many people will go to a church building today and they will worship this false God of holiness. They believe that holiness is the standard of God and we understand God is holy, but they take that standard of holiness and believe that they somehow must attain that status on their own, which we know we can never do. They'll go to to a church building this morning. They'll light some candles. They'll recite some prayers. They might even hold some, some beads and pray over each bead. They'll go to a man that's a sinner himself and confess their sins to that man. And they are doing it in the name of worshiping God. But he's a false God. He's a false God of holiness. Maybe you say this morning, I'm set, Matt, because God loves me. And I know because of his love that I'm saved and the whole world's saved because God is love. And though God is love this morning, we must recognize that what we have done in our sin is we have turned away from God. And until we turn back to God and what his word says we must do to be saved, not that we are doing any work of ourselves, the Bible says we are to turn from our unbelief and turn to believe in what Jesus did alone. And if we have not done that, it does not matter how much God loves us until we turn and put our faith in Jesus, we don't have his salvation. And we can sit there and we can believe that everybody's going to go to heaven because God's just love and he'd never send anybody to hell. But what you're worshiping this morning, if that's the case, the God you serve, you're worshiping a false God of love. He's an idol. For others of us here this morning, maybe we're worshiping a false God of justice. You live day after day saying, God can't possibly save and forgive me. My sin must be punished. There is just no hope for me. Because some of us, even a lot of Christians, I believe, we serve a God of justice. We serve a false God of justice because we hold justice such to a high standard that we believe that God simply is out to crush us. We know we're sinful. We know we've done wrong. And we think God's just waiting to get us back. God is just and he must punish sin. But he's also holy which qualifies him to be loving and die on the cross so that you don't have to stay in your condemnation. He wants to give you his gift of eternal life. Friend, if you're worshiping any of these counterfeit gods today, I pray you'd understand this morning there's a better option. The God of the Bible, as we've seen, is a perfect and balanced God. He offers you forgiveness of your sin through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he hath made him, that's speaking to God the Father, hath made Jesus, that's uh, verse number 20 tells us of that chapter, this is speaking to Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God says we can be made holy and just once again through Jesus. Say, Matt, how how is that possible? Well, Romans 10.9 tells us this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's a promise. 
And as we read that verse, what Scripture tells us is there must be a confession and a belief. It first says we must confess that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Well, it speaks to the matter of being master. It speaks to the matter of being uh, over us in ownership. And, And what that simply is saying is Jesus is God. He is our creator. He is the one who made us. He is the one who has established laws over us. And we have disobeyed him. We must acknowledge. Now, I'm not saying this morning that you've got to know everything about God. I'm saying, are we willing to admit this morning that there are no other gods? Jesus is Lord. He is God. And just the same as we acknowledge that, are we willing to put our belief in what Jesus did as enough to save us from our sin. As it says there, it says, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. If God raised Jesus from the dead, the understanding there is that he died and was buried. That's an understood. And so what, what's being said here is we've got to put a belief from our heart that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is what saves us. It is the only way. Scripture, Jesus put it this way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. And Scripture says, based on our confession and based on our belief, thou shalt be saved. I want to point out when it says believe in your heart, what that's speaking to is simply put the real you. If we could define it uh, to, to really say, well, what does that mean? The real me. Well, let me give you an illustration. How many of you have a very, 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 very close friend? How many of you? All right, several of us. Like I said this morning, some of us need friends. Some of us need friends, all right. Well, here's the thing. You have close friends, right? For me, probably my spouse. There's things about me that nobody else knows. And that's probably the case for you. It might be a parent, it might be a spouse, it might be another friend or whatever. But each one of us, we probably have people that are deep, darkest secrets. Only that one person knows. Or maybe a couple people. Here's the thing. When we want to understand what this is talking about when it says the word heart, we know for a fact that that closest person that we have a relationship to that knows our deepest, deepest, darkest secrets, there's things we've not told them and we don't want to tell them. Am I right? And when we get to that point, though we don't like to go there, that's where we've reached our heart. Because that's the part that you know and the only other person that knows is God. The decision of salvation is a decision you have to make personally. I can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. A priest can't make it for you. You have to make the decision in your own heart to recognize when you get to that place of those secrets that you wouldn't tell anybody else that I have sinned. Because when we get there, we recognize I've sinned. And we recognize that, God, I've sinned against you. And Jesus, you are Lord, and you are God, and I know that I am sinful. I deserve the punishment of sin, which is eternal separation from you. But you say in your word that you came and you died for my sins. You paid the penalty for sin for me. And you say, if I'll put my belief in what you did as enough to save me, you'll save me. My friend, if you would do that this morning, the scripture says thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. Now, we understand that when we are communicating with God in that way, we call it prayer. 
what I want you to understand today is it's not a magical prayer that will save you. But just the same, we do communicate with God in this matter of salvation. And it's something that you've got to make the decision on. As you sit there this morning, as we begin to close the service, I want you to understand this morning that you in your seat there, if you'd recognize, I am a sinner. I don't have the gift of eternal life. I know I'm condemned. Right now, if you'd be willing to confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, he is your creator, and put your belief in what Jesus did as enough to save you, that he died, he was buried for your sins, so you don't have to pay that penalty for you. The Bible says the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus didn't just die for you so that he could pay the penalty. He rose again so that you could have eternal life with him. He wants that relationship with you again. He wants to establish that, but are we willing to turn from our sin, turn from any type of religion that we think is going to save us, and put our faith in what he did alone? Now, lest we forget, this message is not just for the unbeliever this morning. As Christians, we must recognize just the same, that we are susceptible to worshiping false gods. Turn back over to 1 uh, 1 John, rather. 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. 1 John 5, verses 20 through 21. Notice the last verse again. It says there, little children, keep yourselves from idols. When Jesus, or when John, rather, under the inspiration of God, wrote that verse... We've got to understand this morning that he was not writing to unbelievers there. He was writing to Christians. He was writing to the church and he told them, keep yourselves from idols. I know this much, when I read throughout the Old Testament, I'm reading that portion right now, I understand this. The people of God, Israel, over and over and over again, fell to idol worship. And may we not think for a second that we as God's church can't do the same. We as God's people are just as susceptible to worshiping false gods. See, every one of us today must evaluate our life and make sure that the God we're worshiping is the God of the Bible. And if we're not, if maybe we've elevated God's love above anything else, and yes, we come to church and we're saved. And what I'm saying is you can be saved and still worship an idol this morning. Don't think for a second that just because you're saved, you're set. My friend, we've got to all evaluate our life. Yes, we're saved and we're eternally securing Christ, but what we can do is we can wander away in our faith and we might have gotten to the point where, where, where as we're studying, we've come to a false view of who God is because we emphasize his love or we emphasize too much his holiness instead of recognizing God is the perfect unification of all three and we cannot have one without having the other. My friend, if we are in any wise serving false gods in that sense this morning, may we recognize what John says at the beginning of his epistle here. In 1 John chapter 1, just backing up a few pages to 1 John 1, 9, he he challenged Christians in this way. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we've been serving an idol this morning, this is what we need to do based on the scripture. We need to confess that to God. 
The Bible says that he'll be faithful and just if we're willing to acknowledge or confess this sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us. So let me ask you this. If you're saved this morning, what's the faithful and just thing for God to do? If you're willing to confess, it's to forgive. He already has forgiven you. This isn't a matter of when we sin as believers that we have to feel like, oh, I, I've done wrong against God. He's just, he's just, you know, he's really mad at me or whatever like that because we've elevated God's justice above God's love and mercy. No, no, no. We've got to recognize the balance of his justice and his love to recognize this. When we confess, he will forgive. And have we done that? Because at the end of the day, we're not, we don't lose our salvation, but this is what happens. When we're in those moments of not willing to confess, it's called pride. And this is what the, God, what the Bible does say about pride. It says God resists the proud. We don't want to have friction in our relationship with God. Because he's going to resist that pride. And so what some of us need to do this morning is we need to be willing to acknowledge, I've been worshiping a false God or a false representation of God, and I need to confess that. And as I turn from that and turn to the one true God and seeking to worship him, God will forgive me. And he already has forgiven you if you're a believer in Christ, but he wants you to take that step of acknowledgement that you can begin to worship him once again as he should be worshiped. If you'd say, I've been wrongly defining God and worshiping an idol, would you confess that as sin to God today and begin worshiping the one true God? As Christians, maybe this morning what we need to do is take this message as a wake-up call and make sure that we're truly knowing God based on the Scripture, not based upon what our world, what the music we listen to has to say about God. I asked the question one last time. What God do you worship? Are you worshiping the God defined in the Bible or the God you've defined? Each one of us has to answer that question this morning. For some of us, we haven't been worshiping God, but not only that, we're not saved. We know we are sinners and we might be trying to earn our way to heaven by religion or whatever, and we'd recognize this morning God has condemned me. I'm a sinner. But just the same, God in his love and mercy has sought to save me. And are you willing to turn from your unbelief or your religion that's trying to get you to heaven and put your faith in Jesus alone? Church, we've got to each evaluate our own lives. Make sure the God we're worshiping is the God that Scripture defines. That God is love. He is just, he is holy, he is all these things. But he's not different levels of these things. He is, the, he is the existence of them all. And we must balance these things in recognizing God is a perfect unity. And he is the God that we should serve. And if we're not serving him in that way, to confess that to him, claim his forgiveness, and begin walking and worshiping the God of this book.